Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we begin with part one of a panel from the Pima County Public Library Nuestras Raices presentation stage from the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books entitled Collective Amnesia. Local author and Tucson Weekly contributor Margaret Regan moderated this panel, which features Tim Z. Hernandez, author of All They Will Call You. Maceo Montoya is the author of You Must Fight Them and Chicano Movement for Beginners. Well, welcome to the ninth annual Tucson Festival of Books. My name is Margaret Regan. I'm a writer here in Tucson. I'll be the moderator today. We want to thank the friends of the Pima County Public Library for sponsoring this venue. To my right is uh, our guest, Maceo Montoya. Born in California to a family of artists, he's a writer, a painter, and a professor. And he has a wide variety of art works and five books to his credit. As an assistant professor in Chicana Chicano Studies at UC Davis, he teaches both literature and a mural painting workshop. And he also is active out in the community. He's a director of Taller Arte del Nuevo Amanecer, a community arts organization in Woodland, California. He has two books to share today because he's so prolific. He just has published two brand new books. Uh, one of them is a, uh, a graphic work, illustrated graphic work of nonfiction called Chicano Movement for Beginners. And the other one is a work of fiction you Must Fight Them. It has both a novella and short stories in it. And to Maceo's right, we have Tim Z. Hernandez, the son and grandson of migrant farm workers. He was born in California, raised in the San Joaquin Valley. He too has been a painter, and he is a performer. Uh, he came to writing late, is what he told me. He was a late bloomer. But he quickly racked up multiple prizes for his books of poetry and fiction, and he's now up to five books also. He's an assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Texas at El Paso, which he tells me is the only MFA program in the country that's bilingual. His latest book, just published by the U of A Press, is All They Will Call You, a documentary novel, is how he describes it, that uncovers the names and lives of deportees lost in a 1948 plane crash a tragedy memorialized in a famous song by Woody Guthrie. Welcome. Mm, thank you. Thank you all. So Tim, let's start with you. Um, your book is really a fascinating account of your painstaking efforts to learn the names of the deportees who died in that plane crash. Um, maybe you can tell the story of how they were listed anonymously in the news reports of the time and sure. how you got went about the detective work of relocating those people and finding out not only their names but as much as you could about their lives. Sure, yeah. First of all, thank you so much for, uh, for, for being the moderator, Margaret. Thank you. Oh, and also thank you. thank you to all the uh, folks here, the wonderful volunteers, the many that make it happen. And of course, to you all who read and buy books and write. Mm. So thank you all for being here. Um, on January 28, 1948, the United States Immigration and Naturalization Service was, um, they had boarded a uh, Douglas DC-3 airplane uh, in Oakland, California. And they, uh, it was... It was, uh, the passengers were 20, reportedly 28 Mexican migrant workers or Mexican nationals. And then they had a pilot, a co-pilot, a stewardess, 
who was uh, one of the pilot's wife and then an immigration officer. And so all 32 passengers were uh, set to leave Oakland and land in San Diego, and they were, obviously they were deporting the 28 Mexican nationals. Um, but the plane, an hour after takeoff that morning, that early morning of 1948, an hour after it left Oakland, uh, the left wing caught fire, and the plane spiraled down into uh, the central San Joaquin Valley, Fresno County, in the mountains of the, the canyon called Los Gatos Canyon. Now, it's been often mistaken for Los Gatos, California, which is by the coast. And it's actually, no, it's more inland. It's in the San Joaquin Valley, Los Gatos Canyon. Los Gatos Canyon, so that's where it took place. When the plane uh, crashed, it killed everyone aboard. It was deemed the uh, worst airplane uh, disaster in California's history. And um, the Associated Press and the United Press International at the time ran the story from coast to coast. And in those, in those accounts, those news accounts, they mention the name of the pilot Frank Atkinson, World War II from Rochester, New York, World War II pilot. His wife, the stewardess, the Leanne Atkinson, also from Rochester. Uh, immigration officer Frank Chafin from Berkeley, California. Co-pilot Marion Ewing from Balboa Park, California. And 28 deportees. And so that's how the Mexican passengers went down as deportees. Well, one of our greatest American songwriters and uh, folk musicians, Woody Guthrie, uh, heard that in, uh, when he was living on the East Coast. Woody Guthrie being very big on names um, at the time, he, uh, he didn't like that omission, that you know, obvious omission of their names. And so he wrote a poem that uh, in the poem he attempts to restore the dignity of the passengers, the Mexican passengers who didn't have their names. And so in the poem he writes, Goodbye to my Juan, goodbye to Rosalita, adios mis amigos, Jesus y Maria. You won't have a name when you ride that big airplane. All they will call you will be deportee. And that song went on. It got into the hands of Pete Seeger, who recorded it first. Woody Guthrie never recorded it, but Joan Baez then recorded it, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, and the list goes on and on. That song's obviously still relevant today, probably even more so. Um, and uh, so what, when I, in 2010, when I was researching my previous novel, Manana Means Heaven, I'm from Fresno County, I was looking up um, labor camps, Central California, and the newspaper came up with that incident, and I instantly recognized that it was the, uh, the, that, the incident of that song. And so in 2010 began my um, seven-year-long search for the names of those passengers and the story what has taken me from, you know, California to the Navajo Nation to central Mexico looking for these stories. And so that's what the book is about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I just want to add to that that I, the book is so beautifully constructed. And he also digs deep into the family histories of the four white Americans on the plane and determined one was the child of a refugee and one was the descendant of an indentured servant who had worked the fields in America long ago, yeah. bringing us all back to the point that we're all immigrants somewhere right. back right. along the line. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> moving on to Maceo, in both of your books, um, it, it kind of relates a little bit to what um, Tim is doing. You talk about the issue of identity and what does Chicano mean. And in fact, in your book um, about the history of the Chicano movement, you even have a chapter saying, what's a Chicano depends. And in your accompanying novella, you have a young man who's the son of uh, a Mexican father and a white mother, and he's always grappling with his identity. He's fair-skinned. His father wants him to be Mexicano. And he struggles with that. So why don't you talk a little bit about this issue of identity? Uh, sure. So 
Um, thank you, uh, Margaret, for moderating the, the panel, and thank you all for, for coming. Um, I, I teach in the Chicano Studies Department at UC Davis, and um, I'm often posed this question, what is a Chicano? And uh, I off, my response is often, uh, <laughs> um, I stumble. Um, I wish it was an easy answer. Um, I wish I could have um, a very definite um, uh, response. And I think that many of my students come to me um, wanting to have um, a, a, a precise definition that they, could, that they can wrap their arms around. And I think they come um, never having been exposed to, to, to their history. Um, maybe they've heard of Cesar Chavez, um, but they've never read a poem um, by a Mexican-American. They've never read a novel. They've, they've maybe have, um, have seen a movie um, about, uh, about Mexican-Americans, but, but very few. And um, so when they take these classes, um, they get very excited about these stories that, that resonate with their own. Um, and, and, and yet there's always this need, this push, right, to, to put this umbrella term or put a label on, on that experience. And for me, um, although there's, you know, the history of the term Chicano as, um, as a pejorative term, it was used to kind of dismiss um, this population that had, that had lost its, its Mexican culture, that couldn't blend into American culture, and so they were stuck in this kind of purgatory. And so they were called dismissed as Chicanos, or they're dismissed as pochos. And it was the civil rights movement, the Mexican-American civil rights movement, that really took that term, which maybe they had thrown around as a term of endearment, and really embraced it and felt like everything that we had been made to feel ashamed of, we're going to feel proud of, right? So living in between cultures, living in between languages, um, uh, um, you know, collecting these different histories that, um, that they hadn't heard about before, um, that was all, they realized that that was all within, um, within their own potential, um, and I think what, what Tim uh, has done in, in his books, uh, where he, he finds these histories that haven't been told um, and, and does the research, excavates them so that others can, can know the names of the deportees, can hear the story of B. Franco in his novel, Manana Means Heaven. And I think that, that Tim would probably agree that that tradition comes from the Chicano movement, where um, a generation of activists and artists and scholars um, decided to look back and, um, and, and, and figure out who they were, right? And, and to do that research um, so that others could, could know their culture, could know their history. Um, and um, the, the, the question of, of identity, um, I think that many of my students come into class and as I said, they feel uncomfortable um, adopting this term that they just learned about in a class, right? In a 10-week quarter. Um, they're not yet ready to say, I'm a Chicano. They've been told by their parents that you're Mexican. Um, or uh, they've lived in you know, the United States and have always felt uh, alienated or marginalized or that they don't quite fit. Um, and so I think that with the literature that's out there, um, books like Tim's, uh, my collection, um, so many other uh, Chicano writers, they're, they're trying to put the nuance into that experience and to show that there's a, really a diversity of experience um, within what is an umbrella term, whether it's Chicano, whether it's Mexican-American, whether it's Latino, but there's so many experiences within that uh, rather than you know, what we see in popular media um, are the few books that do make it into uh, you know, popular consciousness. Okay, well, the name of this panel is Collective Amnesia. Um, so in a way, your books are counteracting this kind of collective amnesia. 
Um, Raquel was going to speak about state violence against people of color in Arizona dating way back to the 19th century, the Fort Grant massacre, and going all the way up to today's, you know, carnage of the, um, the immigrants who die in our deserts nearby. So in a way, Tim, your new book illuminates that period of the Braceros. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit like about that right now. Um, some of the people in your book were, were coming with permits to work, right? Right. And, but they were deported anyway at the end of their phase. And I wonder if you could talk about that period in history a lot, because it's being brought up now. Um, maybe we'll go back to the, um, the permits for allowing people to come up to work for a certain employer, and that's a, there's a lot of controversy about that. Sure. So if you could enlighten us on them. Sure. Um, yeah, one of the things I'll, I'll say first is actually that there's kind of a subtle misconception, uh, as the way I'd put it, uh, about my book, and that it, folks will refer to it as a bracero book. And it's not that intentionally. So, uh, first of all, not all the passengers on the airplane were braceros, and the book is about all the passengers on the airplane. Um, but some of them did come as braceros. Mm -hmm. And even that itself is not as clear cut. It's not a black or white situation. You know, the, 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 the program, which let me go back a little bit, was in 1942. There were talks, negotiations between Mexican President Avila Camacho and the United States President Roosevelt at the time. About, and those conversations were about how Mexico could be an ally to the U.S. during its time of need, which was, you know, the, world, war, the war was happening. And so all of our uh, folks here were going abroad to, to, uh, to fight the war. And so how can Mexico be an ally? And so the result of those conversations were a guest worker program called the Bracero Program, uh, from the Spanish word meaning uh, brazos, meaning arms. Of, co of course, in this case, working arms. Um, and so the, the initial pilot program uh, sent in, uh, shipped in by train, 4,000 Mexican uh, workers to the fields. Actually, they went to the town of Stockton, which is Maceo's uh, neighborhood. You know, mm -hmm. uh, they went to the town of Stockton and started the pilot program there. And by the, at least the farmer's standards, uh, the program was a success. And so within a few years' time, you had upwards of hundreds of thousands being imported by train, um, by bus, by trucks uh, from central Mexico, different parts of Mexico, but a lot of them uh, in central Mexico coming into the United States to work. For usually, it was typically ran anywhere from six months to a year, they were getting these work visas to come in. Well, after the war was over, um, they... You know, they were, the, the government was saying, well, how do we uh, send these workers back now, you know? Uh, many of them had even started families here by then. Um, and so what they started to do were mass deportations. And we talk about, you know, a historical amnesia, you know. We use much of the language that we begin to hear again. The rhetoric that we hear today is what we were hearing not just in 1948 or 1952. It was we were hearing this since the 20s and 30s also, you know, with um, you know, going further back to the uh, Mexican Repatriation Act and then later on what they call Operation Wetback. But basically in mass sending back, uh, you know, what... I'll say sending back brown-skinned people is what they were sending back because, um, you know, one of the, uh, the numbers were, in 19, at least in 1930, the numbers were between 600,000 to 2 million brown-skinned people were sent back by train, okay? And I say brown-skinned because the, the number between 600,000 and 200,000 is disputable by different scholars. But what's, what's not disputed often is the fact that over 60% of them were U.S. citizens, so they weren't deporting Mexicans by and large, they were deporting brown-skinned people. Um, and so we start to hear that same language you know, uh, used today. Uh, and so anyway, um, going back to, to the Bracero program, one of the things that, uh, at least in terms of the, this book specifically, while some of them were coming uh, and did have 
papers to work as a bracero, you have to understand that those lines at the Rio Vista Receiving Center in El Paso or in Socorro or the lines down in uh, Laredo, Texas at the, at the, where they were crossing were sometimes you would wait weeks before it was your turn to be called to get across. It was just easier to cross. You know, why am I going to wait weeks? I could just walk across the border. So even though I technically had papers to work here, I didn't come here through the, pro I didn't follow the, the protocol. And then some of them were deemed illegal because by the time they got to Stockton, they'd have their papers in hand and they'd have their employer their, that they were signed, signed to, uh, designated to. They'd work for that employer who, and then at times they wouldn't get paid. They would just not get paid. They, they were mistreated. And then by word of mouth, their compadre would say, hey, you know, hey, compadre, the guy across the street, the farmer over there, he's paying, he pays us the money. He's actually paying us and he gives us breaks. So then this guy goes, you know what, I'm going to go over there and work for them. So then he'd go work for the other farmer and then now become technically illegal because he's breaching the contract. So that's why, you know, that's, there's a real sort of gray zone in there. So anyways, that's some of yeah. the... Yeah. You are listening to a discussion from the Pima County Public Library Nuestras Raices presentation stage from the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books entitled Collective Amnesia with moderator Margaret Regan and authors Tim Z. Hernandez and Maceo Parker. Yeah, and that's an issue obviously that's coming up today. People who are pro proponents of the guest worker program We'll run into the same thing because right. you're really farmed out to one particular employer right. and That's many right. abuses occur when that happens. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought I would note when we're going to be talking about the, the history of the Chicanos like that you have in your book, we're all right now in a, in a school district and in a state that have made the teaching of Mexican-American studies illegal, which has you know, got to be a rarity. Um, I just thought I would read a, a little bit from Maceo's book. Okay, this is Maceo speaking. In the 1960s, as Chicanos fought against extreme poverty, working conditions in the fields, the racism and discrimination they experienced in schools and society at large, and their lack of political representation, they started to understand what, that, what they were experiencing didn't just happen all of a sudden or in isolation. Rather, they came to recognize that it was part of a larger history of colonization, exploitation, and displacement, first by Spain, then by a succession of Mexican dictatorships, and finally by the United States. In effect, Chicanos sought to reconcile and rectify a pattern of suffering that tied back to the Spanish conquest of the Americas. Yeah. I wonder if you could comment on that today, what is happening today and what we're seeing um coming down from our federal government, our, the new administration, what relationship does this current crisis yeah. have so with when, that past? So when I finished the book, um, you know, Obama was, was, was still president. And um, you know, I, I, I think that I was, as I was wrapping up all of the different strands of the Chicano movement, and so if you have like the land-grant movement in New Mexico, or you have the, the crusade for justice in Colorado, if you have the, the fight for political representation with the Raza Unida party throughout the country, but mainly focused in, in Texas, um, if you think about the United Farm Workers um, uh, and, and Cesar Chavez, uh, and as I was looking at the end of all of those, those initial thrusts of that political movement of the, milita milita uh, the militant activity um, from the 1965 to about 1975, it was very um, disappointing to see how much, um, 
how much progress was made, but then how many steps back um, had actually had actually occurred. So there was, of course, the successes of the United Farm Workers. Um, but then, uh, if you look at the agricultural labor today, for the most part, workers are, are still un, are, are not unionized. For the most part, they are undocumented immigrants, and the conditions and the wages uh, re very, remain very much the same um, as as what created the conditions of the rise of unionization in in the mid 1960s. Um, and then similarly, uh, seeing so many of these organizations uh, succumb to infighting and to succumb to, to uh, mm. you know, personalities that weren't willing to, to let go of power um, or uh, just differences of opinion that in the end um, fractured these, these very powerful um, and important organizations. But in a way, it was, it was kind of dispiriting, right? Um, but I also, I looked at it as well as that that although these events and these key figures um, were so important to bringing visibility to the entire movement, um, they also inspired a generation of activists, of artists, of scholars, and, and they continued the work in many ways, um, whether it was for political representation or for education that um, actually spoke to, to the population that it was, that it was serving. Um, and and I, I saw that there was just so many similarities between what the, what the people were fighting for in the late 1960s and early 70s um, and what the conditions that existed today, right? Educational disparities, a lack of political representation, a frustration that Latinos only exist, um, you know, every four years when there is an election, um, the, the conditions, as I mentioned, that continue to exist um, in, for undocumented workers, you know, they're still the most exploited population. Um, and to, to recognize that, that over 40, 50 years, that yes, there was the veneer of progress, but, but actual progress, um, all of those conditions still existed. And the fact, again, this idea of amnesia, um, that uh, so many people don't know about uh, the, the activity um, that happened in the 1960s, right? The, the Mexican Civil Rights Movement. They don't know that there were these figures yeah. that were talking about these same issues and fighting these same causes. Um, and, you know, if you, again, if you don't know your history, right, if you don't have those models, those examples to draw upon, um, yeah. you know, then what do you have to really be able to, to combat that? And I, I think that, you know, with the, the with, with Trump and the current administration and, and the rhetoric, it's really has placed that, I think, in very, very stark terms, right? And, and I think the, the blatancy of, of that language and, and, and the acts that are, that are happening, um, uh, it creates like a very real fear. But for me, those same conditions existed just a couple of months ago. And if I look at the conditions of the, the Latino community and the Mexican-American community, um, and that struggle for inclusion in the society, for access to, um, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, just the institutions of, of the society, all of that, that, that struggle has continued and, and it doesn't change with just uh, uh, with, with Trump being in power. I just wondered, uh, as a comment, um, the young people of today, there's very, there are very vigorous protest movements arising. Uh, we see it in Phoenix, an organization called Puente that got national attention a few weeks ago when that mother was being deported and they hung on to the Border Patrol vehicle. Um, and these young people who have this slogan, undocumented, unafraid, do you think that um, that will continue? And do you think that they're at all inspired by the previous Chicano movements? Yeah, and, and again, um, 
you know, I think that there's a need for that education to be there. The fact that like these ethnic studies programs are like teaching their history or teaching this literature. I mean, I'm, I'm a, at UC Davis, I'm an academic. I see it as just a subject of study. That's on one level, it's just a subject of study. It's a history to be examined. It's literature to be, you know, looked at critically. On the other, I see my students who, you know, 90% of them um, are, are, are Latino. They come and they have, they've never been exposed to this, to this history or to this literature. And so they're so mm -hmm. hungry for it, right? They've made it through their entire educational experience. And maybe they know of Cesar Chavez, right? That's it. Um, and so they take these classes and, and they do feel, and rightfully so, angry that um, they weren't exposed to something that they feel is like suddenly giving them life, that, that they can, um, uh, um, uh, you know, strength to their, their sense of self, their identity. Uh, so it's, it's very scary to, to think that 40, 50 years, again, after the civil rights movement, that, um, that these programs would be, would be banned, right? Or that they right. would be yeah. on uh, having to... Um, prove themselves, right? Are, 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 you know, the, to validate why they exist. To me, it's obvious why, why there's a need for them. Um, but I think that the students protesting, um, protesting now, uh, um, I mean, it's, it's very courageous. And uh, certainly there's, again, as I said, a, a continuity um, that, that hasn't been severed over the years. Yeah, yeah. great. Um, I'd like to talk about art to you, both of you. You, you engage in multiple forms. I mean, Tim, you're an award-winning poet. Mm. You've been a painter and you're a performer. I don't know what kind of performance you do. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and sure. how these other art forms sort of expand what you're doing in your literature and your books. Yeah, I mean, all of those have, they all come, I think, from the same, uh, the same you know, I think, goal, which is, you know, to, to allow my curiosity to run rampant and, mm. and uh, you know, dig, dig, dig for the truth, some sense of the truth, until I find a place where at least I'm satisfied with an answer or satisfied sometimes with more questions, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I did. I started out as uh, doing theater was my background and then also um, visual art, painting and murals. I was painting. And... Uh, I wasn't. I didn't. Even, I wasn't interested in writing or literature until uh, about the age of 21, 22, when um, I was painting. And at the time, my uncle, who was like my older brother, he was extended family who lived with us, was shot and killed by the police while unarmed in Tulare County in California. And uh, we hear that a lot today as well. And when that happened, it shook my life up. It shook up my world. And my paintings, suddenly I started to find myself putting words into the paintings. And then eventually I thought, why am I wasting time with dipping the, the paint and getting the brushes and all that? Not that it's a waste of time on sale, but, <laughs> but why, you know, I can just write, pick up a pencil and start, or a pen and start to write on a piece of paper. And so I found myself more and more compelled towards language. And I know now, in re you know, looking back, that I was just trying to find ways to articulate what I was feeling mm -hmm. over the death of my uncle. And, um, you know, and so that's how I, I ended up transitioning into the writing, which then circled back to performance because I had always been a theater. Now I can actually write my own performances. And, you know, I started to allow these characters to speak. And so all of that to me. And, you know, f for me, the way that it's influenced specifically this book, Ollie Will Call You, um, I see all of those, uh, th those threads and strands all present in this book. And in fact, you know, we call the book a documentary novel, but it feels more like poetry. It feels more performative. It feels more like a visual image as well, you know, because there's, so I've utilized a lot of those into this book. Um, and I'll give you an example. You know, uh, photographs play a big, big role in, in trying, when you're talking to people and interviewing them and gathering testimony you're using records well if i could have i could have literally made a, a fat book just of all the records alone that i thought were important to this 
you know, photographs alone. When the families would show me a photograph that would bring tears to their eyes, I knew this was an important photograph that I had to put in the book. And yet, every family had that. So there were now like 50 photographs that I'd have to put into this book. So I thought, well, what do I do? I go back to poetry and I write a necrastic about the photograph. I tell you about the photograph and then I'm able to create stuff within the photograph that never actually even appears in the book. But somehow you've seen the photograph. And then there was also this multimedia aspect of music. Well, there were original recordings that I got to hear that were a uh, first part of the, the original recordings of this song in 1957 in a small room in Fort Collins, Colorado. And you can hear the crackling of the guitar strings in the newspaper. And I thought, how can my reader hear this? I have to write as if it were a performance in a way to so try and evoke. So all of this came into play in the writing of a book like this, which, you know, is a kind of big, unwieldy creature. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to part one of a panel from the Pima County Public Library Nuestras Raices presentation stage from the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books entitled Collective Amnesia. Local author and Tucson Weekly contributor Margaret Regan moderated this panel, which features Tim Z. Hernandez, author of All They Will Call You, Maceo Montoya is the author of You Must Fight Them and Chicano Movement for Beginners. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes are available on the KXCI website.